So we've been watching uh, a bit more movies lately than uh, TV shows like we traditionally do, which is uh, generally because of Disney movies. But I thought we might do one more week of a movie because uh, it's my birthday weekend. So it's like, hey, it's a good time to be self-indulgent, you know, just to, just to watch a thing that I just would, it's like, hey, well, what would I want to watch? But I also had an idea that relates to last week for why I picked this. So this is a, a 1986 musical fantasy film by Jim Henson called Labyrinth. Have you ever seen this movie? <clears throat> so why Labyrinth came to mind for me is I was editing last week's podcast where we watched The Black Cauldron. And it was kind of interesting because, you know, we were not huge fans of The Black Cauldron. And just listening back to, uh, <laughs> to our, our various complaints, it was like, uh, you know, it's just kind of an airy story. People come and go. Events happen for no particular reason. None of it feels very purposeful, just this weird sort of generic fantasy thing that has no particular form or purpose or meaning or anything, <laughs> you know, to be extra hard on Black Cauldron. But what I thought was interesting is all that's true, but I was thinking like, you know, all of that stuff also describes Labyrinth. Labyrinth is live action, but it's Jim Henson, it's got puppets, came out a year later, and it's really airy and strange and sort of doesn't make logical sense. People come, people go, stuff happens. It's hard to say exactly what its meaning was, but Labyrinth is awesome. <laughs> so, so I thought it'd be like a dual thing of it's just something that I like that I would like to watch again, but it might be interesting to compare and contrast it to The Black Cauldron, just as an example of how there's like a good and a bad version of any idea, you know, where Black Cauldron just kind of felt like they didn't quite get get it together. They just didn't adapt that story in a way that felt satisfying. Whereas Labyrinth, it's deliberate. Like the whole thing with Labyrinth is it's much more a metaphor than it is a conventional story. It's supposed to feel like a dream. You know, it's got that dream logic because it's kind of obvious. Basically, it's David Bowie is the Goblin King and Jennifer Connelly is this teenage girl who fed up with her little brother and just wishes he would go away and the goblins are listening in and they're like oh all right we can make that happen so they steal her brother and she has to go rescue him but it's all this weird dreamy stuff that happens because maybe it's really happening or maybe it's not maybe her head is just full of stories she's read and like there's stuff in her bedroom that shows up in the story it's hard to say exactly what's going on is this real is it a dream whatever but because it's meant to be that it makes the dream logic good as opposed to frustrating like it was i mean dream logic's too strong of a word for black cauldron black cauldron just just didn't come together the the dots didn't connect where labyrinth the dots aren't supposed to connect because it's supposed to feel it's supposed to have that feel that weird airy feel and ultimately it is just it's not so much about She's got to make her way through this labyrinth to get to David Bowie and get her brother back, but it's not about logical problem solving all that often, sometimes, but more it's about just the, the will to persevere, you know, the, just the, because the whole thing is just this metaphor for a teenager becoming an adult and just trying to take responsibility and learning how to maneuver in the adult world, but not in some boring normal way in the, holy crap, David Bowie is the king of the goblins, he stole my brother and now I'm in this weird magical labyrinth way, you know? So uh, anyway, it's a really good movie. Okay, well, let's watch it. And yeah, and it's one of those things and like... And I'll comment. Yeah, as far as like uh, 
stuff that like I think back to that distinctly inspires stuff that I write. I can't really point to a lot of things, but I can point to labyrinths. Like if you need dream logic, to me, this is the good way to do it. The way that doesn't feel uh, pointless and doesn't feel frustrating. It just feels proper. It feels like this is this type of story. This is how it's supposed to work. But anyway, let me give you some details about labyrinths. So like I said, 1986 musical fantasy film directed by Jim Henson. Oh, that's another thing. You know, I've many times been critical of songs in anything <laughs> that we've done on this podcast. But David Bowie's in this movie. He co-wrote all these songs. These songs are awesome. These are, in fact, I'd say one of these songs. It's uh, called Magic Dance. I was thinking, this is a side note, my top five favorite David Bowie songs. In no particular order. <laughs> They're Life on Mars, Ashes to Ashes, The Heart's Filthy Lesson, Moon Age Daydream, and Magic Dance. One of the songs from this movie is one of my favorite David Bowie songs. That's how good the songs are in this movie. It's so, all right. And it was written by Terry Jones. I didn't even know that till yesterday. Okay. Well, there, there's two pluses. Yeah. Somehow I didn't even know that. Yesterday I was Jones reading... Jones and Bowie. Okay. Yeah, I was reading up stuff. And Jim Henson. Owen I mean, Henson. There's three. Yeah. I mean, it's just, just good stuff. <laughs> the film stars Jennifer Connelly as 16-year-old Sarah and David Bowie as Jairus at the Goblin King. Uh, Labyrinth had a budget of $25 million and underperformed in the United States box office, grossing only $13 million. However, it was a success in the United Kingdom and overseas, grossing over $34 million worldwide. And then it was a huge success on home video and television broadcasts, which is, of course, where I saw it, where Labyrinth has gained a large cult following. And, uh, yeah, that's one of those things I had no idea until the Internet came along that... Labyrinth was only a modest success. Like, it didn't lose money, but it didn't do amazing. And it's one of those things that you just never knew that stuff before the internet. Like, the guy who did uh, the Scott Pilgrim movie. Scott Pilgrim also didn't do so good in the, uh, in the movie theater. It was, like, the, first, like the, the best movie set in Toronto ever. But it's done great after. And the guy who directed that movie pointed out that, like, you know, back in the 80s or whatever, no one ever talked about, like, how much does it matter how good your opening weekend was. It's such an internet nerd way to look at the life of a movie, which is going to last for decades and decades. Ultimately, Scott Pilgrim did great. And he's like, it's frustrating that it's remembered as like, oh, it didn't do so good when it came out against a Julia Roberts movie and a Sylvester Stallone movie. It's like, yeah, but who cares? How does that matter? And Labyrinth, I feel like, is a very similar thing where uh, Jim Henson, was a, he was kind of down about it. It was the last movie he directed because he died in 1990. And he was like, oh, man, like, damn it. <laughs> you know, Labyrinth didn't really catch on. But apparently, even at that point, because it had been out on video and stuff, like, his son said that before he passed away, he was aware of this, this groundswell that was happening about Labyrinth. And nowadays, I thought this was an interesting point, because I don't know how you really, you know, it's such a weird thing. How do you, how do you determine how successful a movie really is besides money? But Labyrinth, for example, has developed a significant internet fan following since the early 1990s. And as of 2021, there's this site called fanfiction.net where people write fan fiction about their favorite stuff. You know, like they'll write their own Harry Potter stories or their own whatever. And fanfiction.net has over 10,000 Labyrinth stories in the Labyrinth section. So, I mean, I don't know how that relates to other stuff. I'm sure Harry Potter, for example, has more. But that ain't nothing, you know? Like, that's... People do really love this movie, and it is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm glad that he got to see that that was happening, 
you know, because his, he apparently was pretty depressed about it. He's just like, oh man, I put everything I had into this movie and it kind of didn't do that good, particularly in America. Uh, okay, details about the movie. Uh, Henson wanted a big charismatic star to play the Goblin King and sought a contemporary musician for the role. And, you know, I think Bowie was the right guy. But he also considered Sting, that'd be all right. Prince, that'd be much different. Mick Jagger, that'd be really different. Mm -hmm. And Michael Jackson, which that just wouldn't have been, that would have, he would have been the worst one of those, I think. But it's interesting, too, because you can hear that David Bowie had a big hand in these songs. So it's interesting even just from the musical side of, like, all those people would have had, you know, the Sting version would have been <laughs> a lot more airy guitar. And the Prince version would have, I assume, had a lot of trumpet stings and <laughs> I don't know what the Mick Jagger version would be like. like that would have been a weird alternate timeline. Henson stated that I wanted to put two characters of flesh and bone in the middle of all these artificial creatures and David Bowie embodies a certain maturity with his sexuality, his disturbing aspect, all sorts of things that characterize the adult world. And that's one thing we always joked about with this movie is like it's very clear that it's this metaphor of a teenage girl versus an adult, but David Bowie's fucking dick, his package in this movie is huge. Like he's wearing these skin tight pants and I don't know if it's on purpose or just by accident, but there's these shots where you're like, look how big that guy's dick is. <laughs> so that's not mentioned in the article, but that's, that's definitely there. Bowie said, I'd always wanted to be involved in the music writing aspect of a movie that would appeal to children of all ages as well as everyone else. And I must say that Jim gave me a completely free hand with it. The script itself was terribly amusing, without being vicious or spiteful or bloody, and it had a lot more heart in it than many other special effects movies, so I was pretty hooked from the beginning. And uh, yeah, I mean, obviously that's part of it too, is just the puppetry in this is out of control. It's so good. These like great big puppets that took like five people just to make their face work, and there's these scenes with uh, a bunch of goblins that apparently they were like, you know, they made the stage, and under the stage was just like dozens of people running all these little goblins, all this crazy stuff. And, uh, oh, and uh, as far as too, it was like what David Bowie said about it being lighthearted. That's the other thing is that the previous movie Jim Henson directed was called The Dark Crystal, and it was a similar type of thing. But I only watched it once, and it didn't really stick with me because it is like so serious and so dark. And it's like, man, these are Muppets, dude. This is supposed to be fun. <laughs> that movie, to be fair, was more successful at the time. But as time has gone on, I feel like Labyrinth has... Labyrinth's the one. Like, Labyrinth is his, like, magnum opus that, that just for some reason, again, I mean, similar to the last week when we talked about The Black Cauldron, you just can't predict the market sometimes. I don't know why people didn't go see this movie. They just didn't. But ultimately, in the long term, it's a, it's a classic. Well, let's see if it holds up. All right. Labyrinth from 1986. <sighs> So yeah, that's uh, especially what I was talking about, about the, uh, the sort of dream logic is that it does happen throughout, but like the whole end of that movie, if there was anything I could see bugging people about it, might be that, that the entire 
big climactic finale against the Goblin King basically just comes down to you just got to tell him to fuck off and really mean it. <laughs> and as long as you really believe that you're the one who's in the right, you get to win. Like, you know, in a way, it's weird to travel all the way there and have the whole house of cards just fall that easily. But because of the way the whole movie is set up, I never had a problem with it. I just think it's cool. Well, that's usually how all of those stories, though, finish up. Somebody gains power over good, usually over evil, and then quick ending, and the good guys live happily ever after. That was excellently done, though. It was full of action. It was uh, full of suspense, surprises all the way along. Well done. And, uh, yeah, and there's just a lot of things as an adult that I think about now that I never thought of at the time. Like, uh, I mean, just the logistics of those puppets. It makes me tired just looking at some of those scenes. There's so much going on and so much, it's so complicated and just so, just even the little bit that I've seen of the behind the scenes and how many people it took to make all that stuff happen. That's crazy. And even this time, I'm thinking of stuff that I never, never considered before, where like that final speech with David Bowie at the end, I just thought it was kind of a cool, weird thing where he's like, you know, do what I say and I'll be your slave. And all you have to do is let me rule you and I'll give you anything. And now I'm watching that thinking like, is this like a, a weird allegory for like being in an abusive marriage, <laughs> you know, where you just got to say no and get out of there? Is that what she was doing there? Like you could make that argument. And then uh, less conceptually, more just in the reality of this world here, is that David Bowie, you know, he's really putting, uh, as the Goblin King, he's like, yes, I'm the Goblin King, everything's great, I'm so powerful, everything's so cool. But the deeper in they get, and once they get to the very inner sanctum right before his castle, and you really see the economic reality of this Goblin City, and it sucks. Like, he's in, uh, that whole society is in a bad place. So I don't know specifically what his plans were for Toby, but, you know, if he's, like, gonna be the new goblin prince to lead them into a new age of prosperity or something like it's really easy to come up with reasons why David Bowie really does need this kid because <laughs> things are clearly going bad as much as he's trying to you know he himself is together but nobody else is the rest of his society is just like crap but at the end of the day he's alone and they are all they've all turned against him and they've all gone with her so you see it all at the party at the end of the when they all come back and Tell her they'll always be there for her if she really needs them. And he's flying alone out there. So. Yeah. And we were coming up too with some stuff, some stuff near the start, which I thought was kind of neat. Uh, just uh, as far as making up your own headcanon, your own like explanations for things, is instead of it just purely being this weird thing that just happened to Sarah for no reason, it could be that as she's, because she's really into old fairy tales and old plays and things, that maybe as she was delving through these things, she did find some weird old thing that is not commonly known and just says, says these weird incantations that just haven't been said in a long 400 years or something. So, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe David Bowie really is like, man, this is my chance. Somebody hasn't offered me a baby in, you know, 500 years. Like, I'm keeping this baby. <laughs> You're not getting this baby back. But his whole realm, you know, you can't just fight her. It's got to be, here's a bunch of weird crap. You got 13 hours. Oh, now you got seven hours. Oh, now you got this. Now you got that. Up is down. Down is up. Yes is no. Good luck. <laughs> well, what I liked about it is you had mentioned when you were reading the beginnings of it, or reading your little introduction, that it was a, a dream world. And I thought, 
Oh, I hope this doesn't end up with... I mean, not that I believe in goblins and all this kind of stuff, but I thought, oh, I hope we don't get to the end and she's been asleep and she wakes up and, oh, it was all a dream. Right. Because you can read it both ways. You can think that maybe that is what it was, or you can go a little deeper and say she really believes in this world of goblins. Maybe that world does exist. She uh, had insight into it from reading all those things and had the ability to create spells and open it up. And I, you know, if you're watching a movie, hey, I don't see why you can't just go with it instead of having it cheap out. I always call that a cheap out. You have the whole storyline going on, you've been watching it, and then it's like, oh, somebody, oh, I was just having a dream. Like, yeah, come on. That's so, so, everybody's done that. Yeah, and that is one of the classic, yeah, like bad endings. It was all a dream. Yeah. Like, I don't know that there's ever a case that that's really turned out. And in this one, you didn't get, if you thought it was a dream, then when she had all her buddies there at the end, it was like, oh, geez, I don't know, maybe it wasn't a dream. Yeah, that's where I think tone is important. Like, I, I really kind of find plot somewhat overrated because, you know, we've all seen literally hundreds of movies and TV shows. We've seen every plot there is to see. It's very hard for a plot, not that they can't be good and interesting, but it's hard for them to really be surprising or new at this point, where tone is a rarer thing to find something that hits this uh, an unusual tone that other things don't hit and then to, to maintain it. So I think the tone of that movie really goes a long way to selling that. It's like that twilight idea between being awake and being asleep where both things seem real. Or uh, it makes me think of Calvin and Hobbes, where people have asked Bill Watterson, so what's the deal? Like, is... Calvin just imagining that Hobbes is alive or is Hobbes really a toy that comes to life when the adults aren't around and he said like it's not it's both things like Calvin's reality is not the same as his parents reality and some people just can't can't wrap their head around that they need it to be one or the other but it's both it's both things and that's how this movie feels it's fake yeah, and it's real. I agree I agree you have to look at it from both angles you just can't say well it was all a dream because if you that makes it just so blasé. I think, too, they even kind of deliberately broached that earlier with uh, the pack lady, that weird little old lady puppet that is just piled up with all her stuff that sends Sarah back to her bedroom. And Sarah even thinks, like, oh, I'm back in my bedroom. It was all a dream. And then the pack lady walks in, you know, and just, like, just immediately breaks the spell. But it's, like, then piling all the stuff on top of her. Like, ah, here's all your toys. Just stay here. You don't have to acknowledge all this. So they kind of like, it's like they did that before the end of the movie, three quarters of the way through, I think is a way to kind of alleviate that fear maybe, that if, if the audience thought it was all a dream, like don't worry, we already did the it's all a dream bit and we then it just keeps going. I think too, uh, watching it again, I guess the only things from a technical perspective, I guess I always noticed this, but I had forgotten, is the, the one tech side that really doesn't hold up is those weird little fraggle rock looking guys who uh, their heads and their arms and their legs come off and they can interchange limbs because it's the only part of the movie with a lot of green screen there's a little bit in other places but you can really tell that they're just not there they're not they're against a fake background while all their stuff moves around and it's bad enough looking that if they ever remastered this movie that's the one part that would be worth redoing and in fact, I was thinking, like, I think I would have just cut that. Me too. Uh, that, I don't really feel, it added a little bit of the, the threat that she had to run into as she was running through the maze. But there was enough other 
threats and interesting characters throughout that that those I don't really feel they added to it. It was kind of a cutesy little song, and they were tossing their heads around and that sort of thing, and they were going to cut off her head, so I suppose yeah. that was threatening. But I don't feel that really added to it when you considered all that other puppetry that was going on that was just fabulous. Yeah, like I really did uh, I did like that, that it's like jovial and scary at the same time of like, it's not like they're trying to kill her. They just can't conceive of a being whose head doesn't come off. They just want to take her head off and see what happens. Like, that's pretty cool. And I think watching it through at the end when everybody shows up in her bedroom, those creatures are pretty prominently displayed. And I wonder if that was, maybe they thought about cutting that part and they're like, well, we can't, we already filmed the ending and it would be more confusing for these things to show up at the end and like, what the heck were they? Like maybe they got themselves into a corner with that one, but that's the only part technically that kind of is a little rough because all the puppetry is amazing. And then the uh, only part of the dream logic that I thought was a little shaky, especially shaky, because most of it is like weirdly, you can just go with it because it just feels right, the tone's right. But the part in the Bog of Eternal Stench where Ludo just calls to the heavens and it turns out he uh, is friends with the rocks and he can make rocks roll up hills and do sentient things for him. I was like, well, I don't know about that. That's really convenient. You know, this whole movie's pretty convenient. They keep bumping into each other and stuff, but it's a weird labyrinth. Who knows? That part was extra silly until then you get to the end when it's like, we just need this movie to wrap up. We don't have time to fight a whole city full of goblins. So Ludo calls the rocks and the rocks roll in and destroy everybody. So I'm like, okay, like that first one was kind of ridiculous, kind of overly convenient, but it paid off later. So ultimately, I guess that one's a wash. It's, yeah. it's my least favorite plot point, but it had a point. It did have a reason. I found that was okay because, hey, you have to suspend belief anyway throughout the whole darn thing. So yeah. sure, why not? Yeah, and I guess everybody's got their own threshold. So yeah, probably when I was a kid, I certainly didn't mind. And maybe most people wouldn't mind or maybe other people would mind right away. Right away, they'd be like, this movie is nonsense. But for me, that was the one point where it's just like, how are we going to get past this? Oh, wow. Like, it, it felt more magical than magic, <laughs> which is weird. But again, that's just nitpicking. Like, whatever. Who cares? And yeah, the Magic Dance, still a classic song. All the songs are pretty good. David Bowie's awesome in that movie. Just, just man, no what a cool movie. No comparison with The Black Cauldron. This is so far, oh, yeah. <laughs> so far ahead of that. Yeah, it's not like we spent the whole time crapping on The Black Cauldron, but we did a little. And, uh, and yeah, like, for instance, the... I don't even remember his name, but the big bad from the Black Cauldron, Skeletor, you know, he's just evil. He's just so evil. Man, he's evil. You better be scared because he's evil. And it's so much more interesting that David Bowie is charming and a little sinister, but mostly just really messing with you. And then that magic dance part where he's just dancing around with all the goblins and the baby, hey, that seems great. It's like, ah, you know, if Toby does become the goblin prince, could be worse places to be. It'd probably be an all right life in the alternate And later timeline. on, you see him interacting with that baby. The baby who was such a little blat thing at the beginning, just crying, crying, crying. And yet when he's in that castle, he's quite happy. He has a few little whimpers, but he's quite a happy little chap. And he's sitting on David's lap and he's, he's content, very content. He's crawling around on those steps at the end. Doesn't seem to be interested in going home at all. Yeah, where he was miserable back home. <laughs> That'd be maybe the one thing if I had been back in the day, because uh, Terry Jones was the, the guy who was the main writer, but a lot of other people did contribute. If I had somehow been involved in this back in the day and got to take my crack at it, 
that might have been my final gambit that I would have maybe had had the Goblin King try to put forward. It's like, okay, Sarah's not going for any of my any of my bullshit. What if I try to convince her Toby would have a better life here? Like, what if I try to convince her that this is a rare opportunity? He could be Prince of the Goblins. That's awesome. He's going to have an awesome life. Do you really want to just send him back home to his boring, normal world? You don't like it either. No one wants to do that. And, you know, she would still refuse. But but I could, like, he did, he's kind of done a good enough job of selling the fact that it would be fun to live with him. <laughs> that it wouldn't be the worst argument. So anyway, in the end, uh, I mean, I'm just glad that, uh, yeah, that this movie did uh, find its footing on home video and then later on and nowadays it's super duper famous as even as I was looking up stuff you know they've talked about making sequels and things but as we were talking about while we were watching it it's just a different world now 3D is just computer graphics are just not the same thing as as puppetry but if you tried to go back to puppetry I don't know that the world would accept that so I don't know if I'm that excited about that but apparently there are a series of comic books there's like some pseudo side sequel slash side story and like a prequel about the Goblin King before these events and I don't know if they're any good but I think I'm going to try to dig them up because why not I could use a little more labyrinth in my life I'm sure it won't be you know stuff like that is always like you got to take it with a grain of salt it's obviously not Jim Henson doing it he's been gone a long time but uh it's like why there's 10,000 entries in fanfiction.net of people writing about this scenario is because it's just cool but sometimes you, when you have something that is a gem and you've done a really good job with it, it's better just to leave it and stop trying to change it, enhance it, do more of it, make more money off of it. Uh, how many remakes have you seen that they they just keep falling apart and they're, they're weak and watered down and uh, nothing like the original yeah. version? In fact, the other movie, his previous movie, The Dark Crystal, that I was saying how I've only seen it once, it didn't really grab me, so I'm not really that familiar with it. But they did, in fact, make a Dark Crystal TV show a few years ago. And I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's just another thing. I never hear anybody talk about it, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's you should just do it, do it well, and then leave it. Move on. Yeah. Yeah, and in the case of the Labyrinth comic books, it's one of those things I had a harder time with when I was younger. Like if someone made a sequel or made a side thing and it wasn't that good, I was like, oh no, this is like ruining the original. But nowadays I can kind of compartmentalize in my brain and just see it as some some other person's weird take on the thing and, and just assume it's not going to be as good. But if, it, if it's got something to it, you know? Like I like Labyrinth enough that even if I read these comics and they're only 30% as good, that's still much better than most things. <laughs> so, so I'm going to check them out at some point. But anyway, that was my birthday selection for, for this year. Good old Labyrinth. Good choice.